And uh, we're up to chapter 6. As I said a couple of weeks ago, this is part of the second vision of the book of Revelation that began with the vision uh, where John saw uh, God seated on his throne, uh, the holy one true God, uh, and all creation worships him. And then chapter 5 last week of uh, the Lamb, uh, the Son, who was slain uh, to save us, uh, who is given all authority and power, who sits with God on the throne. And it's that vision of that throne with God and the Lamb seated on there that remains with John for the entirety of the book of Revelation. So everything that happens from here on is played out before the throne of God and the Lamb. So the Lamb came to the throne, he took the scroll from the hand of the Father with the seven seals and because he is worthy, he now starts to open the seals on the scroll and we see what happens. And these first four scrolls, the four, what's been popularly known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, have kind of gone down into popular culture uh, with various understandings of what they are. There are books about it, there are bands who name themselves after it, um, normally heavy metal bands. Uh, what do these seals mean? What do these horsemen mean is the big question. Now there are two ways of reading, of, of understanding these seven seals of Revelation 5-7. to seven. One is to see them as a chronology of future judgments, of events that will happen at the start of what's been called the Great Tribulation. In that view, there will be a literal seven years between the church being taken out of the world and the return of Jesus to set up a literal kingdom on earth. And these seven years will be filled with tribulation, as the name indicates. That view has traditionally been called uh, futurism or dispensationalism. You don't need to remember those long words. The other way to read them is to see them as giving us an understanding of the nature of God's judgment. Not merely sometime in the future, but throughout history, including the present. And in that sense, the seals are to be taken uh, in a more symbolic way, not as actual events, but as signs that will help us to interpret the events of history. Now, that's the view that I take, that second view, and that's the view I'll be running with in our journey through Revelation. Now, I'm fine if you take the first view, because how we view the details of end times isn't something that determines salvation. It's not a a primary issue that defines whether you are a Christian or not. But if if you hold that view, there's a couple of things I would say if you hold that futurist view that they are literal events to happen in the future. First, if you take them as literal events, then don't ignore the symbolism that is still presented there in the vision Because prophecy isn't merely a prediction of future events. In the scriptures, God not only tells people what he is going to do, the prediction aspect, 
but he also tells them why he is doing it, what his actions mean, what we are to learn about him and ourselves through what he does. Everything God does is meaningful. History isn't simply a series of events that just happen. They are the unfolding of God's plan. They are the ongoing revelation of himself. See what Paul said to the Athenians. He, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So there's the unfolding of history overseen by God, but it's all for a reason, so that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. So nothing that happens in this world is meaningless or random. It's all working together to accomplish God's goal for humanity and for creation. And the wonderful privilege that we have as God's people is that we've been given insight into the mystery of his will so that we not only say this thing has happened, we can also say this thing has happened for God's good reason and even from time to time and we know the reason why God has done this or allowed this to happen. And that's the point of Revelation. Revelation isn't just a history book unfolding a series of events. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, the meaning behind those events. It's how the Father's purpose for history has been worked out and fulfilled in Jesus. So if you take the view that answers the question, what will happen in the future, also be prepared to answer the question, why will it happen? What's his purpose in it? Uh, The second thing I want to say and related to the first is if you see these as literal events, don't do it in a way that the gospel is obscured or sidelined. Remember, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we should read every part of it and say, how does this point us to and show us Jesus? If we focus just on events and to see how they match up with current affairs, that can lead us to be distracted from seeing Jesus at work in them and behind them and over them. And the problem with trying to match up Revelation with today's newspapers is that we can end up interpreting scripture through experience uh, and we run the risk of imposing on the Bible ideas from culture and politics rather than biblical ideas. The key principle for understanding scripture, if we read something and you may have heard that passage read and thought, what on earth is that all about? How do we understand the things we don't understand in Scripture? The key principle is Scripture interprets Scripture. So our first understand, way of understanding, first step in understanding what this passage is saying is to look at other places in the Bible that the imagery is being drawn from. And in this case, it's the book of Zechariah. 
Now, Zechariah was a prophet who prophesied around the time that the exiles were returning from Persia back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem around the same time as Nehemiah that we heard earlier. Zechariah has two visions that involve horses of different colours. Firstly, in chapter 1, he says, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, who is the king of Persia, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So these horsemen, and you you may be familiar with the imagery if you've watched the Lord of the Rings movies, they are the eyes and the ears of the king, the patrol. In the ancient world, there was no email, no electronic communication. How would a king know what's happening in his kingdom? Well, he would rely on the fastest means of communication available riders on horses. He'd send out his patrols to go throughout the realm to report on the state of his kingdom. And these horsemen would also be messengers. They would send out the king's decrees and his judgments. So here in Zechariah 1, these patrols are currently at home and they're giving their report to the Lord that the whole earth is at rest. Now, despite what we might think from that phrase, that's not good news because the rest of the whole earth is an arrogant rest. It's an ease that comes from the nations thinking that they are in control of the world apart from God. So God says, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster, the disaster there being his people being taken away into exile. Instead, it's not the nations that are in control, it's the Lord who's in control. And he says that he will accomplish his purpose for Jerusalem. So he goes on and says, therefore, thus says the Lord, uh, have returned, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. That's the measuring line of the builders ready to rebuild the city. Then in Zechariah chapter 6, the horses return. Again, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. 
The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country, the white ones go after them and the dappled ones go towards the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth and he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go towards the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So this time it's four chariots with horses and the colours of the horses here match the colours of those in Revelation 6. But they're still there, the patrols. This time they're being sent out to the four winds, north, south, east and west. The two mountains of bronze that they come out from symbolise the bronze pillars at the entrance to the holy place in the temple. So they're going out from the Lord's presence to make sure that his decrees come to pass. Now the north country here, that's the place from which the exiles were returning to rebuild the temple and eventually the city. So whatever else we might say about these horsemen, we need to say they represent the judgments of God going out across the whole world. Judgments through which he's accomplishing a purpose. The purpose is to gather his people back home. Now I've called these the judgments of hope and the reason is because of Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God's judgments are judgments of hope. God's response to human sin was that he handed us over to the outworking of our sin. There's three times in Romans 1 that God says he gave them up. For Therefore, God gave them up. For this reason, God gave them up. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. We see that in the story, don't we, in Genesis 3, when the, the man and the woman who disobeyed God are given over to know pain and suffering in the very things that God had commissioned them to do when he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. The woman would experience pain in childbearing. The man would experience suffering and toil in working the ground until they both returned to the dust from which they came. So there was a futility, a frustration that came upon humanity that God handed them over to 
and not just on them but all of creation. Since humanity was made to be a ruler of the rulers of creations, of creation. But what did Romans 8 say? Why did God hand us over? It was in hope. It was all with a view to the future that God had planned for the creation to be set free into the freedom of the children of God. There's a pattern that shapes all of human history and it's a pattern of death and resurrection. It's this way because all of history is actually shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the key event of all history. And so all through the Bible we see death and resurrection stories, (coughs) literal death and resurrection stories as well as stories of dashed hopes regained, infertile women given children, prisoners being set free, slaves given liberty, wanderers brought home. All of those stories point to the big story, the central story of the cross and the empty tomb. But put all together, they form the whole span of human history which involves death and resurrection, the curse of futility that came through Adam's sin and a resurrection, the new life, the new creation that comes through the last Adam, through Jesus' one act of death and resurrection. And not only history but all of creation is filled with this death and resurrection pattern. Jesus told us about a seed that falls to the ground and dies and by dying produces much fruit. That's something that God built into creation to be a picture of death and resurrection. That means that every single seed-bearing tree or stalk of grass is an evangelist. It's telling you the story of new life that comes through judgment leading to death and burial and then new life. So the first thing we need to understand about God's judgments is the judgments of hope. He gives sinful humanity over to the outworking of our sin to prepare the way for his work of redemption. Remember the words of John, <coughs> given to John in 5 verse 5, Weep no more, there's the death, weeping, but weep no more, behold, look at the Lamb who's standing, who's alive. So as we look at the judgments of God portrayed in these four horsemen, we need to remember that they all take place within this scene, as I said at the beginning, of the Father seated on his throne and the Lamb seated with him on his throne and the Spirit before the throne being sent out into all creation. All of these judgments are before the throne of God. He's overseeing them all. 
So while John's watching, these riders come out from the presence of God. When we look at what's happening in the world and in our lives, we must never lose sight of that vision of who God is, the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit, uh, always there, always reigning, always guiding everything that happens. If we have that vision always before us, it will help us get everything else into perspective. So let's see what these four horsemen can teach us about this aspect of hope in the nature of God's judgments. Now what we'll see is that the four are like a, are in a progression. One leads on to the other, which reinforces that idea of God giving us over to the, to the causality, to the effects, the ongoing effects of our sin. But the progression isn't a historical one. Each one speaks of things that are all happening simultaneously throughout history. What we'll see is how together the four point paint a picture of the original creational mandate that has been distorted and been undone. So the horsemen, what are they? They are humanity acting in sinful defiance against God. But by allowing, by allowing those things to take place, God makes them into his judgments. So we have the white horse, which we're told is conquest. Now this white horse and its rider, it's a little bit like a vision later in Revelation where Jesus himself appears as a rider on a white horse wearing white robes with crowns on his head. But this, this isn't Christ. This is one who claims to be a Christ but isn't. See, this rider is distorting that mandate to rule over the earth. God's original command, which flowed out of placing the man and woman in Eden to uh, bring order, to bring rest, to bring fruitfulness, is being distorted by this rider who wants to conquer He's seeking to rule the creation, but not in God's way, not out of serving and giving and care. This writer is trying to be God himself. That's the basic human sin, isn't it? We want to be gods ourselves instead of as creatures under God. We see the world and we see people as resources to exploit for our glory rather than God's creation to serve for his glory. Then the red horse, which is war. Now what happens when one person who thinks they're a God and who wants to conquer the world encounters another person who thinks they're God and they want to conquer the world? That's why we have war. Conflict. Human beings battling one another for supremacy over the world. The man and the woman were created to be one flesh. 
and to fulfil God's mandate as a united humanity. But through sin, there was division, there was dissension, there was judgement, there was fear, there was blame. And then that division escalates so that in Genesis 4, the first two sons of Adam and Eve are characterised by division and one slays the other. That then sets a precedent for all of humanity and for all human history. Human history has been characterised by war, not just on a national, international level, but on the personal level. You may not be a soldier out fighting in the trenches in Ukraine, but there may be a war going on in your very home. God has handed us over to the consequences of our desire to be gods and to conquer. Then the black horse, which speaks of famine. The scales held by the rider, they're scales that are used for weighing food in the market. A quart of, a, of wheat, or three quarts of barley, was uh, one man's ration of food for a day, for a soldier or for a worker. But the problem is it costs him a denarius, which is one day's salary. Imagine having to buy a loaf of bread, which is what a quart of wheat will make you, for two to three hundred dollars. And that phrase, do not harm the oil and wine, probably means that the oil and wine can't be bought because you've spent all your money just on grain. So you have wheat, but you don't have the oil to make bread and you don't have wine to drink with it. This also paints a picture of a a situation of injustice in which the few who are wealthy are controlling the market to keep the poor down. We see all the time that when there's conflict, when there's war, by those who are in power, the people suffer, don't they? Resources are channelled to the war effort. People are isolated. People are cut off from food supplies. Most of the famines that we hear about in the world today aren't merely due to environmental issues but they're often the outworking of conflicts and wars. So instead of being fruitful and multiplying and bringing forth fruit from the ground, instead what do we do? We bring about barrenness and the ground no longer produces what we need to thrive. So, God has handed us over to the consequences of our warring. And then fourthly, the pale horse, which is death. And this rider is followed by another figure, Hades. Hades is the word in the Old Testament that spoke of the place of the dead, beyond the grave. This is a picture of the ultimate outcome of the curse, Death of the body by returning to dust and death of the soul by going to Hades. Remember what God told the man? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. The moment he ate it he did die. His soul died 
and then his body followed some time later. Physical death is the outward sign of the inward spiritual death that God's handed us over to as a consequence of our sin. He mentions there four types of death and they were just the four most common ways if you lived in the ancient world that you might die before your time, so to speak. Killed by another person, starving to death, getting sick or being attacked by a wild animal. If you escaped all of those, if you died at a ripe old age, you were considered exceptionally blessed by God. Today our list might look a bit different to that. We might add traffic injuries, drugs, abortion, but whether at the hands of another creature or by natural means, death is the ultimate judgement. The full penalty of sin is finally paid. Well, that gives us a very bleak picture, doesn't it? We could say that these four horsemen are an opening up of John's words when he said, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. These are the things that have been the cause of measureless volumes of tears throughout human history. But remember, I'm claiming that these are judgments of hope and here's why. First, notice that the judgments have a limit. When they reach the culmination of that pale horse of death, it's only a quarter of the earth who are killed. Now you might think, Well, in today's terms, that's a lot still. That's two billion people if it was to happen today. But remember, no one's worthy. All are sinners. All people actually deserve the sentence of death from God. So allowing three quarters to survive is actually an act of mercy on his part. It's a sign of his great patience that he's willing to to not punish people for their sins the moment they commit them, but to give us time, to give us opportunity to turn to him in repentance. Every moment a sinner like you and me takes a breath, that's the moment of God's mercy. Secondly, we see what God is accomplishing through these judgments as the next seal is opened. Today we'll just look at the fifth seal. Uh, Next week will be the sixth and the seventh seal. But just this fifth seal itself will be enough to give us an understanding of what's going on. Now remember that this vision is within the context of a temple layout. And he didn't mention it at the beginning, but here we see that before the throne is not only the seven blazing torches and the sea of glass, but also the altar of sacrifice there at the the bottom. Now this altar was, was a solid structure, so it's hard to imagine seeing people under it. But the point is that they're under it as opposed to being on it. Their deaths are not sacrifices per se. Instead, the sacrifice that takes place on the altar 
is actually what protects them under it. What we see here is that God's people are not immune from the suffering that comes from God's judgment in the earth. There's no prosperity gospel that if you just believe in Jesus, you'll be happy and healthy and wealthy and nothing will ever go wrong. Evil tyrants conquer and rule the righteous and the unrighteous. God's people are never promised exemption from suffering. To the contrary, believers are actually told that our suffering may increase if we follow him. There will be persecution that will follow as a direct result of speaking the truth. With that suffering comes a heightened need or sense of the need for justice in an unjust world. And that's their cry, isn't it? For God to bring justice for them against the wicked people who persecute and kill them. But note how even in their cry, they have things in perspective. They cry to the one they know as the Sovereign Lord, who is holy and true. Today, people use the reality of suffering and the claim that God is all good and all powerful to try to argue against God's existence. But in fact, knowing God's absolute sovereignty, his holiness, his truthfulness, actually gives us confidence to cry out to him. If he in his sovereignty has a hand in allowing or even causing our suffering, that it means that he's also powerful enough to deliver us from it. Just read the Psalms. See how many times the cry goes up, how long, Lord, or why, Lord? We can only ask that question, we can only cry out in that way when we know that he is the sovereign, holy, true God who remain sovereign in judgment and in salvation. But while we're not immune from physical suffering, we are kept secure from the spiritual ultimate death of Hades. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I'll warn you to whom to fear fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We all have to face that pale rider of death unless Jesus returns first. But in Christ, we will never have to face his friend following Hades. Why? Because we're hidden safely under the altar. The altar is the cross. We're protected by the covering of his atoning blood. Under this altar, we're given two wonderful gifts that enable us not only to endure the judgments, but to have the confidence that through the judgments, the Father's always at work and he's working to make us more like Jesus. Every single experience of suffering without exception, no matter how small, is being used by God for good, to conform us to the image of Jesus. Firstly, we're given white robes. Now remember what white clothes represent. 
the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ, enabling us, qualifying us to come into the holy place, into God's presence as a priestly people. The doctrine of justification, that you are made right with God through Jesus, that's really the answer to all of our hopes, all of our fears, all of our anxieties. Knowing that you are a justified person, accepted without reservation by God, means that nothing that happens to you will be able to topple you. As Jesus said, they may kill the body, but as far as the soul is concerned, in Christ you've already died and your life is now hidden in him with God. They may shame and ridicule you, but your status before the Father will never change from being his child in which he's well pleased. Your body may deteriorate. You may die just because your body has run out of steam, but we're told your inner self is being renewed day by day. You may have afflictions, but they're light and momentary compared with the weight of glory that they're accomplishing for you. So as you see the four horsemen of God's judgments riding out across the earth, keep within your vision the lamb upon the throne. Remind yourself constantly that he was slain for you, that he has redeemed you by his blood. The second gift we're given because of that is that we can rest. I was told to rest a little longer. Ten years ago, you may remember the keep calm and carry on posters uh, made in the UK in World War II became well known because they thought they'd lost all the originals and then a pile of them turned up in a bookshop. We're at war, keep calm and carry on. What an unreasonable request to remain calm when at any moment a German bomb might fall on you. But God's call to rest in the midst of his judgments isn't unreasonable. Because we know if God is for us, who can be against us? The one who's dealing out these judgments is also the one who's our loving Father. It's through the judgment of Christ's cross that he has redeemed us, that he's made us his children. And it's through his ongoing judgments that he is gathering those that he chose from before the foundation of the world to be his people. So we can stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, confident that all things are working together for good. Keep calm. Know the peace that comes from knowing that Christ has died for you, that you are forgiven, that you are accepted by the Father and carry on. Serve him with joy. Uh, Live your lives in a way that is pleasing to him for his glory so that others too may know uh, that peace and that joy that we have. Let's pray.